0: Are we close to ready up there, guys? While they're getting this ready, if you were uh, not with us last week, we began a a series um, that's focused on the prodigal son story, which is found in Luke chapter 15. And um, as I mentioned last week, a lot of the material for this book, excuse me, for this series comes from a book that was written by Henry Nouwen. And um, it contains his thoughts on the story, but in particular on uh, a painting that he saw. And this was Rembrandt's portrayal of the prodigal son Returns. Um, Like I said last week, this was painted around 1668, 1669, and uh, sits in a museum in St. Petersburg, Russia right now. If you want to see the, the real thing, it's huge, four feet by eight feet, so. It's a big canvas. And um, last week we looked at just the first three verses of this story. Because as I said, that it's a it's a rather lengthy story um, and it has a lot of component pieces to it. And so uh, it makes some sense to kind of break it down a little bit and sort of look at each piece individually. And so last week we just looked at the first three verses, which were essentially the rejection of the father by the son, by the younger son. And we sort of looked at his behavior as it related to his father, and really, I think in the process, became aware of three ways that our own behavior towards God can parallel that of the younger son. We said in some cases, um, it can be just a radical rejection, right? And that's the, those are fairly easy to spot. You know, right, it's the, you know, the case of someone who just completely turns their back on God and goes off into the world and um, doesn't, you know, for a while, doesn't give it a second thought, right? So that's, that's the most obvious of the ways. But there were two other ways that we looked at uh, that sort of play to this as well. One of the other two is that sometimes we can be deaf to love's voice. We can let the voices of the world which can be very loud, overwhelm us. And in the process, we become deaf to that still soft voice that is God's, that is always there speaking to us, telling us that we are the beloved. And so, um, that's sort of the second way that we can reject our Father, so to speak. And then the third way is this fruitlessly searching for love everywhere but at its source. (laughs) And so, We're off into the world and we're looking for love in all the wrong places, as the song goes. um, All the while kind of forgetting that God is the source of love. And until we kind of reorient ourselves and and figure that out, um, we're never going to find it because we're not looking in the right place. So that's what those first three verses of the story sort of taught us. So this week, we're going to focus on the next seven And these verses tell the story of the son's return. Okay, so his coming back to his father. So if you want to read along, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. And it's verses 14 and then 20a, which is the first sentence of verse 20. And it will be up here on the screen as well. So let's jump in. So Luke 15, 14. With everything spent and nothing left... He grew hungry, for there was a severe famine in that land. So he begged a farmer in that country to hire him. The farmer hired him and sent him out to feed the pigs. The son was so famished, he was willing to even eat the slop given to the pigs, because no one would feed him a thing. Humiliated, the son finally realized what he was doing, and he thought... There are many workers at my father's house who have all the food they want with plenty to spare. They lack nothing. Why am I here dying of hunger, feeding these pigs and eating their slop? I want to go back home to my father's house, and I'll say to him, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I'll never be worthy to be called your son. Please, Father, just treat me like one of your employees. So the younger son set off for home. And this is from the Passion Translation. So it may sound a little bit different. Uh, Usually you hear the words hired hands, you know, in there. But you get the idea. It's the same, same idea. And I think the insight that comes from this section of the story are going to reveal a lot about what has to happen in our lives before we finally make that decision to return. Okay? And so... The first one of these is this, is that you're on your way home when you rediscover your identity. And I think for the younger son, it was his remembered and valued sonship that finally persuaded him to turn back. This is a, a young man who went deep into a foreign land. He lost everything that he had. And now his countenance projects only emptiness and humiliation and defeat he was a beaten man the son who was so much like his father now actually looks worse than his father's servants and he has become like a slave so what exactly happened to the son in this distant country well, aside from all of the material and physical consequences, there were certainly some inner consequences that occurred as a result of this experience that he had. And it's a sequence of events that I think is quite predictable. You see, the further that we run away from the place where God dwells, the less we are able to hear the voice that calls us the beloved. And the less that we hear that voice, the more entangled we become in the manipulation and power games of the world. So it goes something like this. See if this doesn't sound familiar in your life somewhere. So to start off with, we're not so sure anymore that we have a safe home. And then as we look around, we observe people who seem to be better off than we are. And so we start to wonder, well, how can I get to where they are? And so we begin to try hard to please, to achieve success, to be recognized. And then when we inevitably fail, we begin to get jealous and we feel resentful of other people. If we do succeed, now we start to worry that others are going to be jealous and resentful of us. So we become, in either case, suspicious we're defensive and increasingly afraid that we won't get what we so much desire or we'll lose what we already have. See, it's a knife that cuts both ways. And so caught in this tangle of needs and wants, we no longer really even know or understand our own motivations. So we feel victimized by our surroundings and distrustful of what others are doing or even saying about us. As a result, we're always on guard. We lose that inner freedom and we start dividing the world into people that are for us and people that are against us. And then we begin to wonder if anybody really cares at all. And so we start to look for validations of our distrust. And, then, and whenever we, wherever we go, we see them right? You always will see what you're looking for. And we say, well, nobody can be trusted. And then we begin to wonder whether every, anybody ever really loved us in the first place. And when that happens, the world around us become dark, our hearts become heavy, our body is filled with sorrow, And our life loses meaning. We have truly become a lost soul. And see, I think the younger son became fully aware of how lost he was when no one in his surroundings showed the slightest interest in him. Right? They noticed him only as long as he could be used to serve their purposes. Right? When he had money. Oh yeah, let's go party with... Younger son. But as soon as he had no money left to spend, no gifts left to give, he just stopped existing for them. And I think it's really hard for us in our culture to, to imagine what it's like to be a complete foreigner, foreigner in a different world or a different place. almost a person that people don't even recognize. I'm just, I am was looking up at John, and I know John came here a number of years from Australia. And um, I don't imagine you knew all that many people when you got here, and so may have had some sense of this, but at least, um, you know, he kind of looked like everybody else and was able to fit in, I imagine. But what happens to that person that just... It doesn't seem to fit at all. And I think that's when real loneliness kind of comes into play, when we have lost all sense of the things that we have in common with our fellow human beings. And see, when nobody wanted to give him the food that he was giving to the pigs, I think he finally realized that he wasn't even considered a fellow human being at this point. And in that moment, he felt just how profound his isolation was, which was sort of the deepest loneliness that anybody can really feel. And I think he probably saw pretty clearly at that moment, if he stayed where he was, and he stayed on the path that he was on, he understood that he was making a choice that was going to lead to his own death. And he knew that if he took another step in that direction, self-destruction was in his future. And so in that critical moment, I think what allowed him to opt for life, and I think the scripture bears this out, it was the rediscovery of his deepest self. It was the rediscovery of who he was. Now, now it makes an interesting observation about this painting. And he says that the one thing, you know, the son is there, he's in underclothes, which is really what that represents. If you look at his feet, one shoe is completely off, the other is almost disintegrated. His head is shaved, which is much of the way a prisoner or a slave would look in those days and in that culture. But... What Rembrandt has done is he's left one item on his person that speaks of his nobility and his sonship, and that's the small sword that is on his hip. That's a sign of his nobility, which is an indication that Rembrandt understood that he had not completely lost everything, that even though he did not resemble at all his father any longer, there was still a tie there to his father's house. And he could have easily sold that. Now, I mean, this is going off book here. This is not part of scripture. You know, had that been truly the case, he obviously could have sold that and made money selling his sword, but he kept it, right? And so in Rembrandt's mind, that was the thing that kind of kept him tied to his father that helped him eventually focus and remember who he really was. Which sort of leads to the second point, and that's that you, you're on the way home when you finally decide to reclaim your sonship. See, he'd lost pretty much everything he had. He'd lost his money, his friends, his reputation, his self-respect, his inner joy and peace. But above all those other things, the one thing he could not lose was the fact that he was still his father's son. And so that's why he says this to himself. How many of my father's hired men have all the food they want and more, and here I am dying of hunger. I will leave this place, go to my father, and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired men. And so once those words were in his heart, he's able to actually make the turn leave the foreign country and begin the journey home. And the meaning of his his return is kind of succinctly expressed in those words, "Father, I no longer deserve to be called your son." See, he his his turning occurs at the moment that he realizes and reclaims his sonship, even though he lost all the dignity that was a part of it. That's gone, as you can see, as, in the way Rembrandt portrayed it. But, and so, to back up a minute, when he found himself desiring to be treated as one of the pigs, he finally realized that he was not a pig. He was a human being. He was the son of his father. And so once this truth becomes aware to him again, he could finally start to hear, although faintly, the voice that calls him the beloved. And he could feel, although very distantly, that touch of blessing that existed between his father and himself. And so the awareness of and confidence in his father's love, as misty and hazy as it may have been, gave him the strength to reclaim his sonship, even though it wasn't based on any merit. And I think sometimes it takes a painful, but in some way hopeful experience to bring us to that core of spiritual struggle to make that right choice. God says, I'm offering you life or death, blessing or curse. Choose life then so that you may live in the love of Yahweh your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. A couple of examples from scripture. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied him. In that sense, they were both lost children. Judas was no longer able to hold on to this truth that he was truly God's child, and so he hung himself. In terms of the prodigal son, he he had gone too far. He wasn't able to turn around, and the path that he was on led to his death. Peter, although in the midst of great despair over what he had done, claimed his sonship, and turned around and repented. See, Jesus, cho- Judas chose death. Peter chose life. And we've got to realize that this is the choice that is always in front of us. See, we're, I think we're constantly tempted to kind of wallow in our own lostness. And we lose touch with that original goodness that is there within all of us. Our God-given humanity, the basic blessedness that we have. And when we do that, we allow the powers of death to take charge of us. And you might say, well, you know, that's not me. I don't do that. Well, I think it happens over and over again when we say to ourselves, I'm no good, I'm useless, I'm worthless, I'm unlovable, I'm a nobody. There are always countless events and situations that we can single out to convince ourselves and others that life is just not worth living. That we're only a burden, a problem, a source of conflict, or just an exploiter of other people's time and energy. And I think a lot of people live with this dark inner sense of themselves. They've given up faith in the original goodness that they have. But they've also given up faith in their Father, who gave them that humanity in the first place. When God created man and woman in his own image, He saw that it was very good. And despite whatever dark voices you may hear, no man and no woman can ever change that pronouncement on creation. Choosing to be a son or to be a daughter is not always an easy choice to make. These voices that constantly surround us in our culture and in our community are going to try to persuade us that we're no good and that we can only become good by earning our goodness somehow, by making it up the ladder of success, perhaps. And it's these voices that lead us quickly to forget the voice that calls us the beloved. And it's that voice that is the one that reminds us that we're loved independently of any acclaim or accomplishment that we may have. These dark voices drown out that gentle, soft, life-giving voice that keeps calling you my favorite one. And they drag us away from that voice. And they make us doubt that there ever even was a God that really loved us. Now, leaving the foreign country is really only the beginning. It's a long way home sometimes, depending on how far you've traveled. So what do we do on the way back to the Father after we've made this decision, this choice to return? Well, it's pretty clear what our prodigal son does. He prepares a scenario. He turns, he remembers his sonship, and he says to himself, I will leave this place and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, I no longer deserve to be called your son treat me as one of your hired men Now as you read that can you become somewhat aware of how full your own inner life is with that kind of talk I think if you're if we're honest with ourselves there's very seldom a time that there's not some imaginary encounter going on in our head in which we explain ourselves, we boast, we apologize, we proclaim, we defend, we evoke praise, or we evoke pity. It seems we're perpetually involved in long dialogues with absent persons, anticipating their questions and preparing our own responses. I think we'd probably all be amazed by the emotional energy that goes into that, right? These constant inner discussions and murmurings that we're doing, and what a toll that can take on us. Yeah, we're leaving the foreign country, and yes, we're going home, but why all this preparation of these speeches, which really are never going to be delivered, How many of those scenarios have you gone through in your own mind that never even occurred? Well, when I see them, I'm going to, you know, or if I had thought of this, I would have said, you know, all of those kinds of things and then more are what we spend, you know, the wheels whirring around in. So why do we do that? Well, I think the reason is clear if we look at the prodigal son story. And it's although we've claimed our true identity as a son or a daughter of God, we still are living as though the God to whom we are returning is going to demand some sort of an explanation as to why we left. We still think that God's love is conditional. And that home is a place that we're still not quite sure of. And so while we're walking home, we we start to entertain those doubts about whether or not we're really going to be truly welcome there when we get there. And I think as we look at our spiritual journey, which we could describe perhaps as a long and fatiguing trip home, we will see how full it is of guilt about the past and worries about the future. We realize our failures and we know that we've lost the dignity of our sonship. And we're not yet able to fully believe that where our failings are great, His grace is always greater. And so still clinging to that sense of worthlessness that we have, we project for ourselves a place that's far below that which belongs to the Son. Well, I'll just go and be a hired hand. And see, belief in absolute and total forgiveness doesn't come readily to us. Our human experience tells us that forgiveness boils down to the willingness of the other to forego revenge and to show us some measure of charity. And if we really read God's Word, we should understand that our, we, we, that the God who loves us is not interested in revenge, is not interested in sacrifice, is interested in our, our love and our obedience. The third way, oh, come on now. You can do it. Or maybe not. All right. The third way you are on your way home is when you honestly repent and receive God's forgiveness. See, the prodigal's return is full of ambiguities. He's traveling in the right direction, but there's a lot of confusion that's part of that. He admits that he's unable to make it on his own, and he confesses that he would get better treatment as a slave in his father's home, but he's still a, a long way from trusting in his father's love. He knows that he's still a son, but he tells himself that he's lost the dignity to be called that. And so he prepares himself to accept the status of a hired hand so that he will at least survive. Right? He's interested in his survival. There is some level of repentance that's going on here but it's not the repentance that's in light of the immense love of a forgiving God. It's a self-serving repentance that offers the probability of survival. Perhaps we know the state of mind and heart quite well. It's like saying, well, I couldn't make it on my own, so I have to acknowledge that God is the only resource left to me. I'll go to God, I'll ask for forgiveness in the hope that I'll receive minimal punishment and be allowed to survive on the condition of hard labor. And so, in that scenario, God remains this harsh and judgmental God. Is this your God who makes you feel guilty and worried? And calls up all of these self-serving apologies in you? You see, submission to this God doesn't create freedom. It only creates bitterness and resentment. And there's something in us human beings that keeps us clinging to our sins and prevents us from letting God in our path and offering us a completely new beginning. Sometimes it it even seems like we want to prove to God that our darkness is too great to overcome. This idea that we can't just accept something for what it is was driven home to me this morning as I was watching my dog. And... um, he comes into the bathroom with us um, you know, when we're getting ready, and there's a bath mat, a uh, floor mat that's on each in front of each sink. Now, and I've looked this up. My dog Gabe is a Weimaraner, and one of the traits of those dogs is that they like to nest. Now we go through this routine every night where for like what seems like five minutes, I don't think it's quite that long, most nights he is over on this bed, and he's pulling it with his teeth and scratching it with his paws and turning around in circles and then the other way, and this goes on and on and on and on until he finally flops down on it, so hard the bed shakes. Well, in the bathroom, he does something similar with the bath mats. He can't just lay on the mat. It's nice and flat, and soft. He's got to scrunch it all up until it's like full of folds and ridges and then he sits on it or lays down on it and then he's happy. And I was watching this this morning and I thought, isn't that the way we are with God in many many cases? We can't accept this nice soft bed that's been provided us, we feel like we have to enhance it somehow. Or we have to do something to make it better than what it is. When in fact, nothing that we can do is going to make it any better. And so while God wants to restore to us this full dignity of sonship, we keep insisting that we should settle for being the hired hand. Question we've got to answer, though, is do we truly want to be restored to the full responsibility of the Son? Do we want to be so totally forgiven that a completely new way of life becomes possible? Do we trust ourselves, And more importantly, do we trust such a radical reclamation? Do we want to break away from our deep-rooted rebellion against God and surrender ourselves so absolutely to God's love that a new person can emerge? A new man. See, receiving forgiveness requires a total willingness to let God be God and let God do all of the healing and all of the restoring and all of the renewing. And as long as you want to do even a part of that yourself, you're going to end up with only a partial solution. And you're going to be the hired servant. Because as a hired servant, we can still kind of keep our distance, right? We can, we can revolt, we can reject, we can strike and complain about our pay and do all those kinds of things. But as the beloved son, we have to claim our full dignity and we have to begin preparing ourselves to become the father. So it's clear that this distance between this turning around and the, the arrival at home needs to be traveled wisely and with discipline. And the discipline is that of becoming a child of God. Jesus makes it clear that the way to God is the same as the way to a new childhood. He said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't ask us to remain a child, he asks us to become one. Becoming a child is living towards a second innocence, not the innocence of a newborn, but the innocence that's reached through conscious choices. What does that look like, the second innocence? How would you describe it? Well, Jesus did describe it. And I think he did so very clearly in the Beatitudes. See, it was shortly after he heard this voice of the beloved at his baptism, and very soon after Satan's voice came and dared him to prove to the whole world that he was worth being loved, that's when he began his public ministry. And one of the very first things he did was to call the disciples all around him to follow him and to share in that ministry. And then he goes up onto a mountain. He gathers the disciples around him, and he says this, How blessed are the poor, the gentle, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for uprightness, the merciful, the pure of heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted in the cause of uprightness. These are the words that present a portrait of the child of God. It's a self-portrait of Jesus. And it's also a portrait of us as we must be. The Beatitudes offer us the simplest route for the journey home, back into the house of our Father. And all along this route, we'll discover the joys that come with that second childhood. Comfort and mercy and an ever clearer vision of God. And as we reach home and we feel the embrace of our Father, we'll realize that not only heaven will be ours to claim, but that earth as well will become our inheritance a place where we can actually live in freedom without all the obsessions and compulsions that we normally live with. Now, so far in this series, we've been focusing on the younger son. But there are two sons in this story. And in Rembrandt's painting, he's standing off to the side. Next time you look at the painting, I'll show it the full one next week, notice that the return of the prodigal is not in the center of the painting. The prodigal's return and the father are off on one side and the son and several others that are kind of observing this scene are really on the other side, the right side of the painting. And so the older son in Rembrandt's painting is the one who's dressed very similarly to the father standing off to the side and not looking very happy. And so next week, we're going to turn our attention to him and find out what he has to say about our relationship with our Father. I would like now for John to come up here. John is my mate. <laughs> he's the only one I can call mate because he's from Australia, and that's what they call people, mate there. So I call John my mate. And uh, my mate is going to be leaving us soon. He is, um, has felt for uh, a long time that God has called him down to uh, Orlando, Florida and was just telling me some very interesting statistics about that place that just sort of affirm why that's such an important place for him to be right now. And so um, God has blessed him with some funds and he has decided that uh, he is going to take a walk of faith. We were having lunch the other day and how much did you say you had in your pocket when you got to America?
1: hundred A hundred
0: dollars he felt like God had called him here and he had $100 in his pocket when he got here. And so um, I think it was partly remembrance of that that has um, led him to just honor this this calling that God's going to provide and go down there and begin to do what he feels like God has called him to do. And so um, this will probably be his last Sunday with us. And so I just wanted to pray over him over his journey over his finances as part of that over his calling and uh, over what awaits him when he gets to uh to gets to this destination so just want to invite you now to kind of hold your hands up and and just join Can with me sure
1: yeah. this as jeff said this has been going on a long time 2008 was when god put on my heart to go down there and plant a church and to do it before now would have been far premature, um, because there are things in my own life that, you know, God needed to build up to a level. And even last year when I went down, I did a fundraiser and started to get a little bit, which I put aside for this. And I went to West Virginia um, about a month ago, and while I was there, my friends have got you know cable TV and. Um, they're always watching, you know, pre- preachers and Word of Faith guys, and I'm thinking, nah, I don't want that. You know, since I've been going over there now about 15 years, I just, I got so tired of the faith message. But this time, God put a hunger in for me to get back in and start listening to some of the, the words of faith. And and so, when I came back, I, I said to do, Jeff, you know, any chance to catch up with you? He said, yeah, going away, which was the voice of the apostles. And I was thinking of going there, and so I started looking at my, that fund, and I'm thinking, what if I went, because I, I needed a word from God. Okay. So I was sort of expecting, and I'm thinking, I just don't feel easy about, it. and suddenly dropped into my spirit about, you know, checking up on prices of these extended stay motels. And I think, Great, I've got enough for about eight weeks and ten weeks is what I was looking at doing and just see what God opens up. Well, one of the problems was, I said, I need to have a vehicle. And John had given me a loan of his um, Winstar van, and, um, and, but it expires next month. And the roadworthy is due next month. So I'm thinking, now what do I do? And so I was just sharing that with Jeff. Well, you know, just talk to John. But I didn't feel to contact him. Last Sunday, I was ministering at a friend's church down in um, Hampton, and I was just sharing.